Welcome, you're listening to the Ace Records podcast with myself, Pete Perfides. This week I'm delighted to be joined by a musician who um, I think first came to my attention sometime in the early 90s as a result of a wonderful 12-inch single which seemed to be credited to two different artists, Scuba Devils and Death Before Disco. As I recall, I'm waiting for him to nod just to confirm that that's the case. That is correct. <laughs> I haven't heard those words in 25 years or something. Okay. And, uh, well, there we go. What a relief. And then, uh, well, he's been unstoppable ever since, uh, having made uh, so many records and uh, of all kinds of hues. Um, the solo albums, uh, the films Crap, Let's Slash the Sheets, the, the Free Association, and Let's Get Killed and Bow Down to the Exit Sign. Then on the Holy Pictures, of course, which is one of my very favourite albums of the last 30 years. And then there are the soundtracks, such as Ocean's Eleven and uh, London Spy and Steven Soderbergh's Out of Sight and then that brings us on to more recent stuff like obviously the Killing Eve uh, soundtrack which he masterminded I know curating is one of these kind of overused words these days but if we can't use it about this gentleman I don't know who we can use it about when he was asked to put together a late night tales compilation he really went above and beyond anything that could have possibly been expected of him we'll talk about that later on as well and here on uh, uh, ace records he put together the soundtrack to the film good vibrations about a unique record shop in belfast which we'll no doubt learn more about it's a delight and a privilege to welcome david holmes to the ace podcast thanks for having me pete it's an absolute pleasure to be here I mean, even now I'm remembering things that you've done that um, I, that I should have mentioned. Like you produced the last Noel Gallagher album, for instance. Like, you know what, let's start with that, because that was uh, that, I was just listening to some songs from that yesterday, and uh, that, was, that seemed to be... You can hear the fun in the studio on that record. Yeah, I mean, when Noel asked me to sort of do it, he initially had a bunch of demos that actually were just sounded quite finished to me. So I, I kind of wasn't really interested in that because it would just would have felt like, you know, what's the point in just adding to something that had been already created? So and you know, Noel has been around for a bit, and you know he's got his own way of making records, and um, he was sort of interested at that time in kind of doing something different. And that's the only thing I'm ever interested in. So I suggested a, just a completely different way of working, which was to let me lead the way, you know, let me come up with some backing tracks, just places for him to jump from, like jump off and inspiration. That would, that would not only get him thinking differently, but it would get him playing differently. Uh, it would get him take him out of his comfort zone. And did you explain all this to him, or did you did you kind of tee it up for him, uh, so to speak, so that that might happen? Oh no, like I don't think Noel goes into anything without having it really thought through. So I explained my idea, and I think he was just kind of okay. Let's try it, you know. And I don't think he had much really great sort of expectation of how it was going to go. So. I just went away and got my sort of, you know, started thinking about it and just started, you know, going through my record collection and listening to different loops and stuff that I'd created and started putting together these kind of really loose backing tracks 
that were basically just inspiration for him. I mean, a lot of those backing tracks were then reduced and, and and kind of stripped back as he started to apply, you know, his his you know his his guitar skills. Is that what you do? Because you're not a musician in the conventional sense. So, and you know, for someone like me who has this kind of fantasy about, you know, that romantic notion of the producer as this ideas guy who can just initiate happenings, uh, that's kind of, I guess it's, it's kind of nice to imagine that that's probably what you're doing in the studio. Is that more how you work? Um, yeah, to a certain degree, I suppose. But I kind of think, you know, if people ask me what instrument I, I play I, I just basically say I play the studio you know the studio is my instrument you know in a general sense because I'm surrounded by you know I, I tr tend to do everything in my own studio um, I've got my own sort of collection of toys that I sort of bring to the party and I've also got you know you know just my own vision I suppose um, of, of, of how I, I kind of see you know music working and evolving from and you know it it just kind of just starts with an idea and grows okay well let's start with the song uh, again while we've been talking about no let's start with a song that people will definitely have heard and then we'll go back to some of uh, your specifically your stuff but uh, holy mountain so when that came out last year you know there was a bit of a frisson of whoa you know he's fine you know he's been talking this record for so long and finally this is fair dues, you know, this is kind of really exciting. And, uh, you know, it's kind of brave, really, for him to do that. So what would you, what what kind of influences were you kind of feeding into the into the mix, as it were? Um, it started off with this kind of, just this glam rock, just heavy, stomping, you know, fat sort of beat, really. Mm. And then I had this sample from this band called The Ice Cream, which is the riff that people know. It's like the... Yeah. You know, and it's just, you know, it's like great pop. Yeah. It has those incredible sort of, you know, unforgettable kind of melodies that just stick in your head. And it, it was actually the last thing that we did on the session. We, we, we kind of wrote most of that album um, in... It took me a couple of weeks to assemble all these kind of like backing tracks, but we kind of had the sort of the basis of a lot of those tracks put down in about four days. Because hmm. because I had these kind of, you know, really interesting, great directions that I felt worked for him and his personality. Hmm. I wasn't trying to be weird for the sake of it. I was just trying to, I was always thinking, does this work within the fabric of Noel Gallagher? Yeah, can yeah. he? Will he get? Will, will this inspire him? But actually, does it inspire me? So I was kind of trying yeah. to, find, to find this kind of hybrid of, you know, stuff that I really enjoyed, music I really enjoyed, but I knew that would fit into his world seamlessly. But at the same time, let him make a a giant step forward. Um, so it was basically the, just this sort of stomping glam rock beat, this loop that I had, and that ice cream sample. And then, you know, we had a bunch of just guitar pedals just laid out. And, you know, Noel is an amazing guitar player. Like, he really is. He's got an incredible ear for hooks. And um, he can just come up. Like, I mean, he pretty much starts every song with 
a chorus mm. and then works backwards where most yeah. people are like they're working on their first verse and then yeah. struggling to get to the bridge and the chorus where he starts off pretty much with the chorus and then works backwards yeah. um so he is like a riff machine and um you know he just like actually most of that track was laid down in in, in that day and then you sort of live with the track for a little bit and then it starts to remind you of things mm. um <laughs> and then the first thing that came to my mind was sort of the plastic bertrand um Saplan that's the one right okay. you know so and then, and also roxy music um their version of let's get together oh yeah so you yeah, had those yeah. like yeah. the horns and then you know i was working with these two girls they're identical twins Una and Georgina McGough, who's they've got these amazing voices. So I got them to do like this kind of like ooh, wee, ooh, you know, but like a, a different take on that. So it was just this whole mixture of like glam rock and sort of like French kind of the French take on sort of melodic kind of punk rock and so you're living out a kind of pop fantasy, uh, you know, in a way you have this amazing kind of facility there. And you know, sometimes I kind of almost see what you do as a sort of in a kind of in in a world of melody uh, a, a, a little bit like what these sort of uh professional kind of hip-hop crate diggers do you know servicing kind of hip-hop megastars with these beats that they're going to be either too busy or don't really know where to go or just aren't willing to spend the hours just looking for that golden loop that will give them their next hit i mean there's there seems to be a bit of commonality there for sure. I mean, like, let's not kid ourselves. There's no such thing as originality anymore. Like, it's it's all been done. So you just got to sort of celebrate your influences and celebrate them, and try and do it in a really interesting way. But for me, working with Noel was really interesting because I'd never really worked on anyone who was that successful before. Like, as a producer, I, I worked with young bands um, who work in a very different way. But Noel. And myself, we're, we're kind of magpies, really. And I always try and kind of marry the kind of, um, if something is going to be as obvious as Plastic Bertrand, then marry it with something that is a bit more underground, like the ice cream and, you know, um, Lieutenant Pigeon, you know. So it's kind of, yeah. it's got this kind of melange of sort of ideas. and There was a conversation, you know, where like a book's my friends were, is this supposed to sound a bit like Lieutenant Pigeon? Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, just that kind of delight that someone might have actually be, done it deliberately. You know, um, well, it was a direct reference, yeah, for sure. You know, but it's like Noel is—he's kind of like a DJ, mm. but with a guitar. You know, if you listen to like the first Oasis record, I mean, you can hear four different tracks in one yeah. track, and but it's put together so seamlessly. <laughs> And because you've got, you know, one main guitar player and one main singer and one drummer and one bassist, but you're kind of, you know, you know, sculpting this sound from all these different influences, it ends up becoming a thing. Well, you, uh, yeah, you know, you say you say there's no such thing as you. What was it? Let's not kid ourselves. There's no such thing as originality anymore. But that the, yeah, that brings us to unloved, which you know. It's easy for us to sort of say that, and with my 50-year-old, you know, cynical brain, I can sort of kind of get, like, molecular kind of 
traces of things that you know so other records in my collection but to be honest i hear my i hear like my daughters listening to that record and they it sounds totally original to them and that's not because they haven't heard some of the influences i think it is because actually if you come down to it, who has made a record that sounds like those unloved records really what else sounds like unloved maybe in this day and age i mean i suppose the the records that we were listening to were actually the the people who had made those records were listening to someone yeah. else yeah so it's it, it kind of like it you know it ultimately ends up sounding like a thing in this yeah. case unloved or no wool or whatever so you just gotta you know i i think what i try to do is celebrate my influences but i'm always trying to sort of put them together with things that don't necessarily like you know on paper don't really work yeah we're like unloved is a, a kind of you know it, it we're influenced by everything from um specter jack nietzsche to raymond scott morricone you know um just much more obscure like italian library music and just weird kind of electronics but there's also a big influence from the, the instruments that hmm. we're actually using and then I think that's what gives it its originality, um, if I dare say it's original. But it, you know, then you've got Jade Vincent, yeah, who has got the most extraordinary, unique kind of baritone voice. How did she enter the picture? Well, when I I was working in LA um, on a movie for Steven Soderbergh called Haywire, I'd heard about this keyboard player called Keefis Chancia that I I was told like, you really like this guy I just think the two of you would click in the studio so Keith has turned up and we actually hung out for about an hour and a half before I even heard him play and I went I love this guy I just as a person you know we just had a laugh and he was just really easy to talk to what was it okay yeah he was just an interesting guy you know he was just doing his own thing and then we had a really good time you know, on the movie, and he kept in touch with me, and then I had a really good experience working there, and then I came home and I said to my wife, do you fancy our daughter at that time was like seven? And I was like, you know, this is a really, I was offered another film out there, and it was paying me quite handsomely. And I was like, you know what, do you reckon you could get a year off work? And we'll, we'll, we'll go and just live there, and you know, we can afford it and we'll put Nina into school. It'll be an amazing experience for her. And, you know, I can do a you know a couple of film scores and maybe make some, you know, do some music. So I came back and Kephas invited me down to this club that he ran on a Tuesday night called the Rotary Room. <laughs> and the Rotary Room was basically in this little dive kind of venue in East L.A. And... The whole idea was that it was it was it was centered around like a large pool of musicians, mm. and all the musicians were like shit hot. Mm. Whether you liked what they were doing or not, it's irrelevant. They were all just amazing musicians. And when I went down there, Jade, who is Kefis's partner, came on the stage, and I just thought she was one of the most intoxicating and just incredible captivating singers i'd ever seen and it was like wow and then keith has asked me to come down and play records in between the groups so i was coming down and just playing you know bridget fontaine and you know broadcast and cat's eyes and all these really yeah. you know and, and a bunch of you know 
girl group stuff, you know, and they had never heard a lot of this music before, and but really loved it, you know. And then Kiefer says, "Would you? How would you feel about producing us?" And I says, "Well, you know, why don't we just make a record? You know, yeah. I don't, I don't really want to be a producer, you know." Yeah. You know, so how, how are you going to pay me? You know what I mean. So yeah. like, why don't we just do something together? And there was an amazing studio, still is, probably the best studio I've ever worked in in LA called Vox. At the time, it was called Electrovox, and it's been in LA. The building has been there since 1931, and it was the studio that Gold Star um, was 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 based on. Hmm. Um, one of the owners of Gold Star used to work there. And he basically took the blueprint, left Vox and built Gold Star. So it's got the same dimensions and stuff in the live room and right. the vocal booth. And it's kind of like a living, breathing Gold Star. And being a complete specter nut, I was like, this place is amazing. And the guy, Woody Jackson, who's one of my favorite musicians in the world, favorite artists in the world, he does the soundtracks to Red Dead Redemption. He's a total head, but uh, instrument head. He's crazy. Like he, he's the most extraordinary collection of musical instruments. And I met him when I was working on Ocean's Twelve because I was looking at a real Mellotron, and I tracked him down. He came down to the studio, but he says, "Ah, will I bring my Marxophone?" And I was going, "What's a Marxophone?" Yeah. And then as soon as I heard the sound, it was like, holy shit, <laughs> is that what that sound is? You know, and then so he played on Ocean's 12 towards the end and just overdubbed and he was amazing. And so we went into Vox with a bunch of ideas and a lot of the ideas were from the records I was playing down at the Rotary Room. Hmm. And we just started making music. Um, and it was like, wow, this is really, this is working. This, 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 this has a vibe. So we ended up making about 30 tracks and it just kept evolving from being quite dark and minimal and super cinematic very european um very kind of like from nino rota yeah brigitte fontaine uh jacqueline talib and you know taib and uh, all these yeah. just super but i also a lot of people that are scattered across ace compilations yes um so yeah it, it just kind of evolved, but I was kind of very conscious of the fact that I was living in Los Angeles and I was a huge Phil Spector and Jack Nietzsche fan. I'm working in this studio and I'm going, what am I doing? And it was all these singers and, they all, and they're all friends. And it was like, let's, let's, let's try some girl groupy kind of vibes and, but, but kind of fuse it with these kind of really interesting kind of, you know, just, um, vintage analog synthesizers and yeah and, and just sort of make it feel like it's more modern but and you get the atmospherics and the kind of otherworldliness that you you know would almost sometimes associate with more modern things like you you mentioned broadcast and cat size and that when you mentioned those i thought yeah i can sort of you know if you're doing a, a compilation then you could drop a couple of songs by those people into the mix so it's this wonderful sort of, uh, and the exciting thing about it is, you know, if, if I describe, you know, if, if I'd never heard Unloved and you were describing to me like, okay, that's what we did, I'd put the record on, I'd probably be trepidatious because I think, well, you made it sound kind of too good. In, in, you know, it's almost like the, the you know, the theory, the, the practice can't be good as a theory. But the great thing about those records is, you know, the first time I heard Unloved, 
it was just um it was almost too good to be true in a way you saw whatever you whatever was said whatever was information was exchanged in the studio it clearly worked well i you know a lot of these players like kefis and jade who are my you know we're, we're you know unloved is us three hmm. and then everyone else we bring in you know like um as session players and, and and guests uh, to, to to perform and and play, I mean they're just all really shit hot. They're just amazing professionals, and they're all ridiculously talented. So it actually makes the whole process actually quite straightforward and dare I say it, quite easy. You know, because they they they're just they've been playing from a very early age. Like Jay Bellarose, our drummer, and DeAnthony Parks. Yeah, he's a great drummer. They're yeah. they're, they're two of the greatest drummers in the world yeah. so they're coming in and they're not like you, you don't have to really talk to them that much you just go this no. is the vibe no absolutely and, and you're also in a in a studio where like Woody used to say like uh, Vox is, is where shit engineers come to get great sounds because <laughs> you, you, you literally he has such an amazing <laughs> mic collection and like he's got like Hal Blaine's original timbales yeah. he, he's got like you know keyboards that were you know, belong to Quincy Jones. Like it's it's all, it's not just original uh, keyboards. They all have a history. His microphone collection is like they come from Capital. You know, like Frank Sinatra sang on that. You know, it's 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 super nerd. Okay, and, and so then you've got this incredible room and this talent. You've got ideas, and once you put it all together, then it's just about using your ears to sort of say, "This is great." Take that away, and we're sorted. Or it needs this or you know it's not I wonder if like a Jess Glynn record or something if you literally made it there with those musicians if even that would sound great that's kind of what I'm wondering it probably would <laughs> it's it's I mean it's such a it's just got such an atmosphere and it's got so much depth and you know the gear is so good and it just makes you realize that a lot of you know modern recording equipment um, like modern drum sets but yeah. then there lies the contradiction because I've seen these drummers, DeAnthony Parks and Jay, their drumming is so good that they can make any drum kit sound good. Exactly. There are no hard and fast rules. Yeah. But you know, we were kind of living this kind of, well, I was definitely living this fantasy. You know, I had Jim Keltner done playing mm -hmm. drums. He played drums on Guilty of Love. Yeah. And, you know, he's played on absolutely everything. You know, he was just standing in the studio just telling me about, you know, working with John Lennon. and Played on All Things Must Pass, didn't he, I think? He did. Some of it. Yeah, he did. You know, wow. he, he played on a bunch of, uh, I think he played on a bunch of John Lennon. I think he played on Imagine. You know, um, he did a lot of Spectre stuff. Um, you know, he he was, you know, much a, a later, I think he was much a later member of the, the, the Wrecking Crew. You know, he right. wasn't like yeah. Hobley and obviously and was so, the man, but... So you have, so you're, you're sort of... I kind of felt like I was working with the modern day wrecking crew. Yeah, well, it sounds like you are as well. In fairness, yeah, it has that sort of. Uh, it's physically irresistible. Yeah. Um. So, a lot of what you did with Unloved was used on in Killing Eve. Correct. No, thank you. <laughs> I wonder. I wonder what. Um, it, it it's such a perfect fit that you almost sort of wonder that how you know it was this i almost wonder about the styling and the kind of editing technique of killing eve and i wonder if 
you were kind of brought on board fairly early on because it's such a kind of close fit the kind of mood of what you do, what you do on those songs to the way the look and presentation of Killing Eve or is it just a happy coincidence it was a total happy coincidence i mean like a lot that music had been made 7 years before Killing Eve even started shooting you know and when they first sent me a script i i you know i I, I get sent a lot of stuff and other stuff you just can't mm, you just sort of know instinctively yeah just by the kind of synopsis or whatever it's not for you but once i seen you know phoebe waller bridge was attached and she had sort of written it i was like oh this is this is this this, this is going to be interesting because i'd seen fleabag and i knew <laughs> this girl's like super talented and she's fresh she's definitely bringing something new to sort of television and drama and comedy yeah and i read the first script and then had a skype with all the producers and phoebe and um uh, gary dolner the editor who was the person who suggested me and he had already been dropping in tracks from other compilations that i did and he had contact by brigitte bardot in, you know in, in an episode and stuff yeah. i didn't actually know that at that at this meeting i didn't find out gary was responsible until christmas there until it was all done we were actually well into the second series this is what gary the editor yeah yeah and then but one of the things that it, it struck me about it i realized that it was like super like female heavy yeah and i knew that a lot of the episodes took place in different countries so when i had my interview um i just said look First of all, I think, you know, I, I identified that the music should be female-led. Um, I wasn't even thinking of Unloved. Um, and I think because each episode takes place in a different country, it's just I have a pretty good record collection. And when we're, when we're in Italy, we can use something, you know, something yeah. Italian in France. We can use, you know, something French. And, um, you know Russia blah 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 and that would give the whole thing a real just interesting um, you know atmosphere and it, no, nobody's done that it's brilliant it's a brilliant know? idea and you know it seems obvious now but it, it isn't really um, but well, you know it's like let's focus on making these tracks real super badass like really good yeah and then they said okay well why don't you send us a bunch of music so I, I just put them a folder of music together but I, I give them unloved and they, they sent me the first episode and there was like three unloved tracks in the in the first series and I was like not only I, like, I had no doubt that they were staying because they work so brilliantly against picture and the characters yeah. and it was like holy shit this is amazing yeah uh, so once we got the first episode in the bag you know, we we kind of like okay, how are we going to do this? And then I kind of suggested to them that they let me, let us, kind of just let us do an episode. I'm, I, there's no point in me sending you a scene, or you know, here's another scene because you're not going to really understand what we're trying to do. So it was like here's a first episode, and then we had Anna Karina Roller Girl, and then Francois Hardy track um, that I can't pronounce right now and um, and then there was th a few unloved tracks we might have put another unloved track and then we created this original score because it's it's such a heavy music led series and then they just went this is amazing like we, they were really 
th they loved it. And okay. it, then every episode became like a blank canvas and then there was episodes I sent back and there was like six on love tracks because the, those original sessions that we did in LA, we'd, we'd made about 30 tracks. Yeah. So we had this huge archive of stuff that had never even been released. There was tracks that we didn't even, hadn't even finished. But the reason why it works so well in Killing Eve is because Kephas and I, we're not just dropping the needle. We're like getting the multi-tracks up. Yeah. And then we're actually we're able to actually score the unloved tracks to picture. So yeah. it has it's so much more tailor made and it's nuanced and it, it's dynamic and it has, you know, impact at certain moments when you need impact, it pulls back. Because we've got we've got the capabilities of doing that because and of you, the multi tracks. And you do you do have this. You you're able to kind of make uncrunchy things very crunchy indeed, I've noticed. Um there must have been instances okay it went brilliantly with killing eve but then and because you were working with people who understood what you were doing when you said just give me one or two episodes they let you but we all know what it's like working with kind of you know it's sort of big shot sort of you know uh, executives who sort of you know who don't necessarily want to be told what to do or who don't want it to be too weird or just want you to give them something a little bit like what's already been done before and there must have been projects that you got involved with where you quickly realized that actually you're you're not going to be you're going to be treated fairly sort of shittily really and it does happen i i kind of like try to avoid that experience of course you do <laughs> as much as i can because i know what it's like and it is hell when you're in a situation where you haven't got the control that you need to do what you think is right but on the other hand i've also been incredibly lucky to work with people like steven soderberg mm. who has got really good taste in music is all about the process and wants to do things differently and he also wants to you know he wants to kind of push the boat out. He wants to take chances. He wants to, he wants to introduce people to new sounds and new songs mm. and new ideas that maybe they hadn't been exposed to. So it's kind of like I've been really lucky with some of the choices that I've made and some of the opportunities that have come my way. And I, I learn a lot from these people. But you know, I, I've always wondered, and it's it's a very strange thing, that why a producer. <clears throat> or a non-creative person that where music clearly isn't their field hmm. would even dream of suggesting that the music should be the way they hear it rather than kind of recognizing actually I know nothing about music and that I don't know whether that is sort of kind of justifying their large kind of wage packet Mm. or they actually genuinely think that what they think is the best way forward. So it's about, I've worked with a lot of people who just don't have to deal with that shit. You know, sometimes things just boil down to taste. Mm -hmm. And it it, you know, it very much depends. Like the director is king in cinema. Mm. You know, it's their vision. You know, they're, they're, they've been with it from a treatment right through the script, um, right through casting, you know. it. it I've directed a film, like a short film, and it's one of the most difficult things you could ever do. I mean, I, my, I've got such a profound respect for directors because they have to listen to every single detail. 
but you also have to sort of follow your own heart and your own instinct hmm. so yeah and that's why you can't really sweat you know should i have done it sort of differently because ultimately you've got to because that way it just lies terminal indecisiveness i've been i've been fired from three movies i mean it, and what it, were the re- can you give tell me some of the reasons given it's just a taste thing it's the same thing it's like you're not doing what they want could you see it coming in with regards to those three movies uh, or were you surprised no i think you can always see it coming you know because it's just you're just not pleasing the director is there just one kind of awkward conversation too many and then you kind of know what's i just think you know i haven't been fired from a movie in you know 20 years or something you know but i think you just learn from it i mean i think john williams has been fired from over 30 films i'm sure yeah yeah. the the thing about music and film is that music is the last thing to go on Right, and sometimes people ask too much from music and film, um, and they're expecting the music to kind of perform miracles. Yeah, of course, of course, and, and to kind of actually cover up some pretty bad acting or bad cutting, or you know, and sometimes with, it works. Yes, I mean sometimes the music can actually sort of cover up all sorts of of, of nonsense, but ultimately. You know what you want is the music to be uh, the film to be in a brilliant place where yeah. the music doesn't have to do as much work it, it should it, it should always be doing the correct amount of work mm. rather than actually too much work you know gotcha. and, and then the great films are basically when everything is right you know like the lighting the the, the, the you know right down to the sort of the, the, the most the finest detail the, you know the you know the costumes the, the you know the, the, the editing that you know everything yeah and you know that's what makes a great movie and, and it's really really difficult it's one of the hardest things to do to make a movie where everything is just the way it should be of course because really when you when you're talking about a film like that it's the it's like the equivalent of going on a 30 mile drive through built up areas and only seeing green lights all the way it's like the chances of that happening are almost you know it's like amazing you know uh, that anything there are as many great films as there are well that's why you see still like great directors who've made some of the greatest films of all time still make uh, you know I won't mention any names because what's the point but you know you can get like an iconic filmmaker make a movie that's just okay hmm. and it's just why is that i don't know no the stars well, just did not align yeah there are so many variables um let's backtrack a bit because i want to know about um it kind of like well records really and, and really when sort of records sort of entered your life um you're from, it, it, you're you actually grew up in belfast right yeah yeah still live there and um and record you were well, on our way down to the warehouse you were talking about how some of your kind of first lp acquisitions were sort of ace releases um can you think back to what some of those might have been well i actually grew up in a household of 10 children and i was the youngest so i had a record collection when i could walk you know mm. i was always exposed to amazing music what I were was, your siblings playing um the sex pistols mm. and the beatles and Elvis and you know Simon Garfunkel, Supertramp, you know Bob Dylan, you know the Stones, the Kinks, and they were t- uh, the, t- the soundtrack to Midnight Cowboy. 
um, the soundtrack to Once Upon a Time in America. That's the, yeah. That was, that was go- going on in my home. So the soundtrack to Midnight Cowboy alone is like there's so much going on on that record. Totally. That um, that in that that single album is an education in itself, isn't it? For sure. And uh, it's, it's actually still my favorite soundtrack of all time. Yeah. And one of my favorite films of all time. Same, same, yeah, absolutely. And it's just a stunning piece of work that works on so many different levels. I remember seeing that film for the first time and going, oh, didn't qu- even quite understand it, but I just knew that there were so many different worlds in that film that just excited me. It was shown on Channel 4, I think, in 1986, and I remember it. Um, and I think I'd, I might have even had the soundtrack before then just because it was I saw it cheap in a shop and that was enough reason. And so it was very odd seeing, um, you know, I, I like it when that happens, when you hear a film, when you watch a film having already heard the soundtrack and seeing the way the songs are sort of slot into place. No, for sure. And, uh, and uh, so that, and, you know, just uh, Old Man Willow alone was just... Uh, I can't, just hearing that for the first time, and then, but also that kind of lovely, um, just quite, you know, like I, I, I was, I'd almost stopped, bit, you know, I was at the end of my childhood, but to see something like that, a famous myth, which is just really, you're just young enough and just idealistic enough to really just be swept away by something as beautiful as that, you know, it's for uh, sure. I mean, I mean, I'll tell you like a, quite a personal story. I mean, my mother introduced me to that record that was in her collection uh, she was also a massive Gladys Knight fan and um, when my mother died in 1996 August 4th 1996 I was so stunned I mean, my mother was we were really close incredible woman like super modern mm. you know she's you know born in 1924 you know but really you know her modern thinker of just life how you should live your life and she it wasn't I, I just was so stunned by it and then I went on holiday with my girlfriend at the time and it, it midnight the, the, the orchestral version of the midnight cowboy theme yeah I had it on a CD, yeah, and that was it. I was and I was I was on my own, and that's when my morning began, and it just brought like everything back. And I, I remember just like crying like a child for about two hours, like uncontrollably, it just everything came back. But it's such an amazing theme; it's so powerful, isn't it? Isn't and it, it just triggered everything, and it was like, oh, you know, that to me was the ultimate power of a piece of music that represented such a big part of your life in the most profound and personal way. Can you imagine writing that? That's just unbelievable. And it's so, it's so simple, do you know? Yeah. But anyway, that, they're the kind of records that I grew up with, but like everyone around our age, um, I can't speak as much for the modern day world, but I'm sure they're all confused with the internet and don't really know what to do, even though they've got every single thing available to them at their fingertips, or we had to go searching for these things. I remember, so my first love was like, just just growing up with all this music and enjoying it. Um, wasn't really, but I, I was obsessed with punk rock. Yeah. I loved the Pistols and the Damned and the Clash and my sister Maggie bought me London Calling and 
It was like 19... Was it 1980, 1981? London Calling was 80, I think. Right. I remember she bought me the double album for Christmas. And there was a Damned album that came out at the same time. Was it... Um, I can't remember the name of it, but... But she, she lived in London. She was a fashion designer. Right. And she... The first day she arrived in London, she went to Brian Jones's Wake in Hyde Park. And then she seen the Pistols at the 100 Club and... You know, she seen she she went through every scene, but every Christmas she would come home with an extra suitcase, and and like we had very little money. It was like ten kids living in a three bedroom house. So, so how many people did you share a room with? Uh, two or three. Um, but then people would leave. Like my brother left just due to the troubles, and his best friend was shot dead, and it all got a bit messy. But um, yeah. and then my other brother left, so it was kind of it was normally about sort of eight of us living in the house at the same time but they would all every now and again would all be together they'd come home for Christmas or something but my sister Maggie who passed away um, actually 23rd of May like two years ago she was such a huge influence and she brought me back so many amazing records and like Sex Pistols bootlegs and she made me a pair of Bondi's trousers when I was like nine or something you know like you were wearing Bondi's <laughs> but I couldn't wear them in front of my dad you know, I, I actually couldn't wear them out. It was like private, you know, and I would I remember soap in my hair. And I, you know, so I was kind of this kind of like closet punk rocker. I remember my brother's best friend coming to our house uh, wearing bondage trousers for the first time. And my mum just coming to the door and just be because she didn't know what they she didn't know what bondage trousers were. she just she just didn't know she just thought it was just a pair of trousers with lots of zips and presumably uh and straps e well the, presumably there was a pocket for each zip so you could just put a lot of things in them you know right she did she had look how is a kind of middle-aged greek woman gonna remotely understand the concept of <laughs> bondage trousers um so you were um that that's kind of mind-boggling what did your parents do um, my mother was a seamstress and you know and she was also you know she was a cleaner she was like a, like a, she worked in a you know in a hospital you know doing a, you know like a nurse she was a nurse in a hospital um, my dad was a worked with you know cattle and you know livestock he was also a bookie he did the, like the point to point you know the the dogs you know the the racing and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I'm sort of, a, but he worked. So he worked on a farm or in an abattoir or in an abattoir in an abattoir. Yeah, right, and right. on a farm as well. Okay. Know, so they, they, both of them had like two or three jobs. It's amazing that your mum. I mean, I mean, with that, with ten kids in the house, uh, it's amazing that she's able to get as far as. Well, you have to remember that Maggie, my eldest sister, was like twenty years older than me. Oh yeah, yeah. So of course. So when I was born. I had sisters who were like 16, 17. Of course, right, yes. yes. So they were kind of like helping out doing the house. Yeah. Like everybody had a job. And you know, when you do the ironing, you're doing the beds, you're doing the dishes. What were your jobs? I got away with... I, well, there's a sort of a, a joke in our house that I was the only child that my mother actually was able to enjoy. Because when I was born, obviously a complete accident, you know, because there was six years between me and my other sibling rushing um, so by the time I came around she had kind of learned so much as well just as a human being and then she went you know what son just do whatever makes you happy you know <laughs> you want to be a DJ that's fine <laughs> you know? and you were you were by the time you were 15 you but were I had a brother who like went to live in Chicago 
his best friend was shot dead at the corner of our street and then very bizarrely the head of the UVF in South Belfast pulled my dad aside and said get rid of your son he's going to get shot and my brother came home from work as a 17 year old electrician and 24 hours later he was living in Chicago and he stayed there yeah is he there now no he died really he, yeah he died I've got I've lost a brother and a sister and oh, no I'm sorry. My, and my parents but he died um, quite young actually he was only 59 um, and uh, he died about five years ago but uh, and did he spend did he was he did he, did he stay out there the whole time yeah I mean he came home like you know yeah. for Christmas and stuff not, not, or he would just turn up yeah yeah and he would stay for a couple of weeks and then just get out but you know then our house was bombed we had like a jelly night bomb thrown in our backyard yeah. um, when I was four so that would have been 1973 do you remember that yeah it's my earliest memory of the troubles and what um, can you describe it to me please? I mean just I was I was actually getting bathed by my sister and next minute just heard this explosion and it was just like screams and panic and everyone running out of the house. That's what you do automatically. You just run out. The, that's what you have yeah, to I mean, do. that's it's a. I mean, I, I remember the moment yeah. and the panic, but yeah, you know, I, I don't remember the detail. You were four, obviously. You know, yeah. but I mean, that is my my earliest. Well, it, it's definitely something you're going to remember. You know what I mean? But absolutely. I mean, I remember all sorts. I remember British Army just you know raiding our house at three o'clock in the morning, you know, doing the floorboards and. You know all that looking for stuff, but not none of my family were. were we actually li lived in a mixed neighbourhood. Yeah. None of my family were political. Yeah, my mum and dad brought us up in a mixed neighbourhood because they didn't want us growing up in a segregated neighbourhood. Yeah, where there was more chances, where you could maybe get involved. Yeah, in yeah. paramilitary groups and stuff, you know. But they were very smart that way, and we were just lucky to pretty much get away unscathed. You know, and well, so to the point of like, there was no nobody shot dead or anything. Or? No, well, with ten of you, by the law of averages, that's kind of we a, did pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say. Um, so you were presumably you left school at what sixteen or something? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. And you were, de but you were DJing by that point. I was DJing from when I was fourteen, fifteen. W what kind of venues? Um, just um, like you know, the top bar in a club called the Abercorn is a mod club. It was kind of so. I, that's why we kind of lost track now because we were talking about just the music that we were listening to. So after the whole punk thing, yeah, you know, we all, of course, we all grew up with three channels, and then we came four channels, and then um, in the early eighties, we all got either a Betamax or a VHS, <laughs> yeah, video, and. I'm sure it was the same over here where there were video libraries in people's houses. Yeah, totally. I remember it well. You go around knocking the door and the whole family are sitting eating your dinner and you go, you're, you're looking for films to watch? Yeah, but we had we had the video, man. That's totally, that's the end of 1982 where we got a video recorder. Every weekend the video man would knock on our door and he would hand us like maybe five photocopied sheets stapled together of A4 paper and you'd, you'd tell him what you wanted and he'd look in his van to see if he had, you know to get what you yeah. wanted I mean I, I loved those days so we had a VHS and then I remember going into my neighbour's house and I remember renting The Long Good Friday with Bob Hoskins and Helen Mirren hmm. and Quadrophenia 
Yeah. And I put on... My dad had confiscated all my punk clothes. And I'd just been given the most amazing seditionaries (laughs) t-shirt. Which was like, oh my God, this t-shirt is unbelievable. And he took it all off me for misbehaving after school down smoker's entry. As we call it, that's where everyone went to smoke. Okay, so you were smoking. Yeah, but just yeah, just yeah. to be just to be you yeah. know you know, you know, a rebel. But I didn't really start smoking until I was like eighteen or nineteen. So as a as a kind of mid teen, what were you, what were your kind of what was in your record box? What were But your... once I seen Quadrophenia, yeah. my life changed. I knew it had changed, everything changed. And from that moment I became an obsessed modernist of just you know, I've watched that movie about 50 times in my life, probably. Yeah. And, you know, I had my sister, Maggie, who lived in St. John's Wood. And, you know, she brought she brought me and my mum to London for the weekend and, you know, took, took me down Carnaby Street to Milandi and the Carnaby Cavern and took me to see Fast Eddie at the Hope and Anchor and, you know, and just had this real extraordinary, you know... Uh, just profound just experience of living alone. I remember coming back to Belfast and being quite depressed. <coughs> you know what I mean? And my friends used to be take the piss out of me because there's a scene in Cordophenia where Jimmy and he says he hasn't been the same since Brighton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he used to say to me, he hasn't been the same <laughs> since London. You know, but I was just, I, I became so obsessed and that brings us up to actually the question you asked, which was Kent Records or Ace Records. So there were three brilliant record shops in Belfast and I would get a bus and that would uh, that would drop me off on at the first um record shop was which was called um Doogie Nights. Um, I think it was like jazz yeah and soundtracks and big band and you know just some rhythm and blues blues that kind of thing you know um beat, you know, doo-wop and I would go in there, and then I would go around the Heroes and Villains, which was more, that's where I had, I learned about the white noise, and um, David Bowie, you know, before he became David Bowie, hmm. and bands like the Bow Street Runners, and, um, you know, uh, Brian Auger and Julie Driscoll, yeah. and, you know, that, and then I would go down the Good Vibrations, and see Terry, and, you know, that's where you would get just, you know, but one day I walked into Terry Hooley's shop, and he basically pulled out this crate, like an like a beer crate. Right. And there was like, there must have been fifty sevens, and they they actually were owned by this mod from the sixties. He used to go to the scene club and the flamingo, and um, and there was like a signed copy of Ride Your Pony by Lee Dorsey on Sue. And, wow. You know, the Blandells, la 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 la, and El Watusi by Ray Barreto. And I was like, holy shit, like last night by the Marquise, wow. all original mint condition. He says, they're for you and you can give me the money. What, you know, just whenever you have it? Whenever you have it, yeah. Oh, and I never God. went into his record shop again for another like 10 years because I was skint and embarrassed. He'd give me all these great records, but the minute I started making some money, I went in and paid him. What did he say? Thanks very much. Where have you been? You know, <laughs> but you know, that was like, like, that was just an unreal, you know, suddenly I had the best records in town. So but you, then I, you know, with my pocket money, I would go to like shops like Caroline Music, and down to 
Heroes and Villains was more abstract and weird. And they did comps, but they did like really interesting comps where Terry would sell all the Charlie comps and all the Kent Records comps. And um, so I would, you know, go and buy these incredible compilations, um, all selected by 80 and, you know, amazing sleeve notes and just. So Eddie Crowsdale. For yeah. People who, who, and just incredible education in music that I would never have found, you know, like on the soul side and it's for true. dancers only, for dancers also. And just finding out about all these incredible, like, didn't know who, um, Garrett, Garrett Mims and Timmy Tonica, Euro yeah. and, you know, the, the, the Shirelles compilations on, and, and Bobby Freeman. First time I heard Garnet Mims was on a on a nice comp as well. Yeah, I think it's probably so, uh, a lot of people probably on the soul side. Yeah, so that was a huge education for me, and it was those comp. I remember those compilations cost three forty nine. Well, that was the thing, wasn't it? That was that's why you could have you know, and there were like you know up to twenty songs on them sometimes. Yeah, so that's so, how. I, yeah, you know, coming from such a big family, you know, that was my Christmas. I had a paper round as well that I get paid five pound a week. Yeah. And that would buy me an album. Um, so I, I was just, you know, just digesting so all this. It's kind of weird that it's the, 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 the completion of this circle, because obviously, so then, I mean, it must have been mind boggling for you to sort of the idea that finally a film would be made of Terry Hooley's life. And, um, and that you two would work together on this uh, on this accompanying CD with putting, I mean that's kind of that's kind of mad, isn't it? Really? Yeah, it's like it's good vibrations. I, I was a producer in this film as well. It's, it was the first movie that my I've got a little company called uh, Candor Blinks that I I do with two of my best friends, and they they directed it and. I'm actually just looking at it. No, it's, it's, it's a killer comp, hmm. you know. Um, and, you know, it was just such a strange thing to make an, a film about a record shop that you've been going into for, like, 40 years, um, about a guy that you've known and, 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 and loved in a strange kind of way. Because it's, cause it, you're, it's part of your personal mythology... And actually, in in being made a film, it kind of becomes just part of mythology in a way. Yeah, like two of my friends wrote it as well. So, yeah. and we we've actually just made another film called Ordinary Love. It was called Normal People, but we had to change the name because the Sally Rooney book has come out and it's winning every award you can imagine. <laughs> so it's like we can't really call our film Normal People anymore. And it's it's a love story with Liam Neeson and Leslie Manville. But the guy who wrote it, I've known since I was ten. Wow. Uh, the same directors as Good Vibrations, um, and it's actually a, a you know a true story about you know Owen McCafferty and his wife and you know their their life and a period in their life and it's it's an extraordinary film. Again, you know we're making these movies about our lives in a way, all intertwined, but we're doing it together, and there's just an amazing satisfaction you get from that because you know we're just all a bunch of friends who grew up in a bloody civil war and, and now we're making feature films and you're telling stories that no one else can tell because you because you were at that moment in time and so it's a kind of it's it's vital that these stories are told 
No, for sure. Um, it just makes it. It's just crazy that they're all, you know, our stories and well, stories that we lived through, and you know, yeah. and we know the people that we're, we're we're sort of telling them about. Is it true that you, for a time, you used to be a hairdresser? Yeah, I mean that was some of the best days of my life because. Where, <laughs> who taught you? Where did you cut hair? I cut a hair in this salon called Zach's. Uh, Z-A-K-K-S but back then it was like hairdressing was like a where all the weirdos worked it's not it's a different industry now you know if you were weird especially if you're going up in Belfast were the creative outlets yeah I mean DJing to me was something that I loved doing I took very very seriously but it was never like this could be my career it's going to lead on to production and blah 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 it was just you did it because you loved it Nobody ever said to me, hey, do you ever think you could do this for a living? Is it like riding a bike? Is it something you never forget how to do? Hairdressing? Yeah. Um, I could, you know, cut hair. You know, I could, you know, I could cut your hair quite, you know, respectfully, yeah. But it was just a place for creativity. You know, you could go and, you know, you weren't digging up the roads. It was the opposite. And Absolutely. You know, you were kind of like, your bosses were all, all bonkers and everybody dressed weird and, had yeah. her different colours and you, you you could listen to the music that you wanted yeah while you were kind of cutting someone's hair so it was actually a really enjoyable way of making a living but then music just took over and it was like bye bye hairdressing absolutely I mean he would yeah um, let's talk- especially when Acid House began because that's when it, the world really opened up for DJs yeah you know and then suddenly I was like will you come and play in my club in Leeds and London and Manchester and then it was like do you want to come and play in Berlin do you want to come in Amsterdam do you want to come play and you know wherever and then suddenly it's like oh you know it, it's something that just I don't think anyone foreseen what the acid house generation when it just started would become and you, you got you got straight in there because like, like like I mentioned earlier on, the first music I ever heard by you was that mysterious twelve inch that was kind of appeared to be credited to two different artists. It Death. was on Mute Records. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, that was great. So, but it's kind of different. I wouldn't necessarily if someone played it me now and said, "Guess who this is?" I don't think I would guess that's David Holmes. Yeah, I mean, I think we're all very similar. Like we all pretty had a similar kind of journey. Like growing up in the eighties was like a huge education for so much music. Like our whole lives, and then suddenly the whole acid house thing happened. But I suppose the difference between us, I don't know. Like, what am I trying to say here? You know, you had this, like, huge knowledge of all this other music. Like, I couldn't have made Let's Get Kills if I hadn't have been playing in mod clubs when I was 15. My Mate Paul is a sample of the Googie Rennie combo, Smokey Joe's Lala. I used to play that record when I was 15 in a club and come home in the 11 bus, you know. And then suddenly I'm, I'm able to sample it, make you- loops, and then add some bits. And then suddenly it's this massive club hit. I can't imagine the satisfaction that that must engender, you know. Because again, you know, you what you're taking something that's really part of your personal mythology, and it's, it, watching it spider out into the world, it must no, be. That was crazy. Oh, it's crazy. So I had like, as a young producer, I haven't got a clue what I was doing. All I knew is like, one thing I learned from Andrew Weatherall, 
Andrew was always like a mentor to me. Like I always looked at him as like it doesn't get any better yeah. than Andrew. Um, just because of his intelligence <laughs> and how unique an individual he is, so he was always like the man to me. No one yeah. touched him. His DJ sets, I always like. Oh my god, what is that? You know, he was kind of what's that? Yeah. <laughs> you know what? But he was also he was a very generous kind of with his knowledge you know Andrew knows more about you know his 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 knowledge of music is insane and he's because he's so he's very very bright uh, just naturally intelligent man hmm. he, he can remember every detail you know and I learned a lot from him but one of the things I learned from him was you know if you're going to go into the studio and try and make records try and make them your own personal thing don't be the derivative of the derivative hmm. it's cool to be the derivative of yeah. something yeah but you know that's that's got to come from like your soul you know your heart and soul so when i d was doing let's get killed a lot of those sort of samples were from records that i'd had for since i was 15 since like you know 1984 yeah and and going one step further when i think a lot of people when they heard the holy pictures for the first time that was kind of quite revelatory because that seemed to come from that seemed to come from a whole other place and again i guess a little bit like unloved now it was you couldn't imagine it you know it was, felt like unique to the person that had made it tell me a little bit about what the th you know what your kind of vision for that record was putting it together again it was just like a whole sort of melange of ideas that i kind of felt worked really well together but hadn't really been done um so it was just um, Can I ask you something? The Mary Chain was one, and then I was listening to um, um, the more kind of like sort of left side of sort of Krautrock hmm. and getting into different time signatures, like, you know, listening to sort of Cluster and, um, you know, uh, Michael Rother and, uh, yeah. you know, and less kind of Noi that had already been kind of done and, and not focusing so much on the beat, but on the melody. Of, of of German music and and but, but also Eno and Lanois and Harold Bod and I'm, I'm just thinking back to that record and, and suicide and, and just all these things that kind of work but the thing about Holy Pictures was you know my dad died and so I suddenly I was you know an orphan my mother had died in 1996 and my dad died in like 2007 I think um, and then I just started singing. I just went, you know, because up until that point it was like rent a pop star. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I did that and buy down and never got a huge amount of satisfaction out of it because it was kind of like, it was just like a project rather than a personal, <coughs> you know, statement. Where, You're you know, Let's Get Killed had a real personal thing about it, you know. And, and Holy Pictures, I, I couldn't have got any more personal. And so I just started writing lyrics and. I, I collaborated with Martin Rev on a song. Um, Suicide. I Heard Wonders, yeah. yeah. Um, and and it, you know, it just just became a very, very personal project because of the death of my father. And, and then things started happening, you know. And I didn't really have a plan as such because the first thing that was made on that album was I Heard Wonders. Mm. And, you know, I, I do, I'm, I am... I wouldn't say this about much of my my music and stuff, but 
that is a track that I'm still really proud of. And I, you know, I think it's a good song. Did you know, you must have been told in advance, I guess, when uh, it was used to accompany the footage of David Beckham and uh, Jade Bailey bringing the Olympic flame up the Thames. Yeah, but I got an email from Universal saying there's an offer from to use your song in the Olympics, but they've only got like 200 quid. <laughs> and I was like, I nearly turned it down. Oh my word! Because I was just like, "That's how tight is that?" You know. So you know what? It's the Olympics. I hadn't even considered the enormity and the impact <laughs> of what that meant, even. And I just went, "Okay." And then it's like, "Fine, you can have it." And then I was recording one day in LA. I was actually working on Unloved, and then my phone just started going mental. It, you know, and then I then I seen the footage and it's like, oh my god, they've used the entire track over this incredible kind was, of sequence. It was so amazing, and it became a hit overnight. Yeah. And like, it was like hundreds of thousands of plays on YouTube, and you know, I think it actually entered the top forty for a minute. Yeah, yeah. And people just like, you know, I don't even think we had Shazam back then. Maybe we did. I don't know. Yeah, but I don't know either. It was kind of like a real revelation. and But a lot of my music's been like that. You know, it's just sort of lay dormant. It comes out and it's received pretty well and um, most of the time. And then it's kind of like it just sits there and then suddenly it finds its way into a film. I know. I always, it, it has a second life almost. <laughs> Every track is a little bit like a sort of message in a bottle. You know, you throw it out there and then, you know, to quote Sting, you know, seven and a half years later or something, then your hundred million bowls are kind of <laughs> washed up on the shore one day. Yeah, that's, that's been this, that's been through all my records and Unlove was the same, like, until Killing Eve, you know what I mean? It's like, we didn't, nobody really knew about us, you know, records come and go. We've always had amazing support from people who love music and they get it and, you know, I think you know you've stayed you've stayed incredibly busy, and I think you know one doesn't really have to be busy beyond a certain, but beyond just making a living, one doesn't have to be busy. But what I've, but what I notice with with people who are obviously talented, but also say yes to things, um, say say yes to as many things as they can, is then that kind of creates. In a way, you make your own luck. So what you were saying earlier on about being in L.A. and then hooking up with the guys who would eventually be sort of unloved with you. Well, you sort of didn't have to be there and you didn't have to... And that initial kind of conversation probably wasn't about a kind of money-spinning kind of super lucrative thing. But it's a kind of thing... You sort of follow your nose, don't you? And if you if you take care of that, then... that. I, hopefully that more often than not that takes care of everything else doesn't it yeah i mean i think you have to just do it for the right reasons mm. and not try to sort of do things for any other reason rather than this is how i feel and i'm going to stick to it and i'm going to see how it evolves and you kind of follow your instinct and your gut feeling and, and just you know just kind of you know these things kind of grow and 
you know, it doesn't mean that you have to sort of put them out, but it gets to a point where you're going, actually, this is really good, or I'm really proud of this, and we should try and find a home for this. And well, talking of which, I've got to ask you about your late night tales set compilation. I get it. Um, it seems to be quite unlike anyone else who has done a late night tales compilation. I mean, as far as I can see. A fair chunk of it seems to have been either specially recorded or sourced for the record. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I just, I'm very conceptual, you know, in terms of, you know, projects. And I'm kind of like, I also, you know, I suppose I'm quite obsessive by sort of nature. So I kind of like get into, you know, projects that have you know like a start in the middle and an end you know they kind of tell a story it's kind of i suppose where the cinema comes from so i like to have a narrative or you know and um late night tales was very much you know about you know again i i kind of had this sort of always had this real strange kind of fascination with death and you know I've quite experienced you know, and unfortunately, yeah. You know, you know, just with, you know, losing my parents and my brother and sister and stuff. So <clears throat> that's always had a real sort of profound effect on me, and I try to kind of celebrate that. And it's a part of you. You know, it's such a strong part of you. It's also you develop such a responsibility for the music. Yeah because they're there sitting on your shoulder. So when you took that job on, would you have necessarily known that? So I'm thinking about a track, like, you know, obviously you're trying to do my, did a bit of research around some of the tracks on there just to find out more about them. And so something like Great Father, Spirit in the Sky, which is, I think, credited to... Barry Bar Wilner. Now... Yeah, that's on Andrew Weatherall's label, Moindu. That's like, that was... Which a, is, it's Irish for, like, the dirty dust. Um, it's a seven-inch series... I, I always pay attention to what Andrew's doing and it was like a, a series and Alan McLean, the track on there as well, that's from the same series, but they were like limited edition, mm. seven inches, and I had to literally beg them to sort of let me put them on the company. I mean, like Andrew's a dear friend, so yeah. he, he was very, very supportive and helpful and I think Alan and, and, and Barry were just really pleased to be a part of the project because yeah. it did have... You know, um, Barry had lost his partner, and mm. you know, Alan just wrote the most amazing song. I mean, so and my sister had died, and it was all, you know, it, it kind of. I knew what I wanted to do, and I had this uh, elsewhere in Cassie's, which is a, an extract from Seamus Heaney's last sort of translation that I got Stephen Ray, the actor, in to do so wonderfully, and. It was all just connected to life and death and the afterworld, um, believe it or not, you know, or just memory and, um, you know, family and just all that sort of connection. And so it was kind of, once the idea was there, I suppose, I just started to just dig. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and it kind of called for some original pieces to be, to be created and, you know, every track on there has a connection to something or some in my life. And well, you can tell. That's the extraordinary thing about it. It's it's really kind of it's you know it's so much more extra <laughs> than most other late night tales uh, compilations. Much. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I did put a lot into it because, like I said, there's there's a responsibility 
when you're dealing with those kind of topics and those you know people who are like so close to you and um when I was doing the holy pictures it was the same thing it was like I knew I was putting myself out there like singing and stuff but I, I didn't care about my singing so much I just want I just wanted it to at least sound like I meant it you know yeah. what I mean so it was the singing's it, good I had to check the credits at the it time it took me so long it's like oh talking like a thousand takes i never signed before in my life so but i had the beauty of being able to record it myself yeah so i could just my my wife and daughter would go off to school and work and i would just sit in front of a like a a, a neumann 40 a u47 it's bright, a pretty good it? microphone yeah. and actually just experiment and just to try and get myself sounding you yeah. know and i i was actually listening to the spaceman 3 at the time yeah. and listened to jason's voice and it kind of felt, you know, that's, I can do that. That's a good template, yeah. And I can, not only can I do that, but it's something that's part of me. Yeah. And it feels that it's right for this music. Yeah. So I was kind of like ripping off him and ripping off Jim Reed and I was kind of, you know. You, you uh, learn, yeah, that's a pretty good template to learn from. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like singing, not singing. But I, to me, it's all about emotion. And if you can get that across, you know, that it, it sounds authentic and real yeah. then you've done the best job you can and you, you've it's a it's a great thing so well, it's it's a re- nobody it's can take anything away from you you know what i mean they can't yeah. say it, it doesn't matter what anyone thinks because you've give it like the best you've, you've done it from the bottom of your heart and even though i can't sing it, it doesn't matter because you, like, you can sing you could you that sing anyway um i feel like i've detained you here long enough david thanks for uh so oh, absolutely lovely interview and thank you so much thank I mean, you i've really enjoyed it thank you very much you're you're in town for an unloved show tonight just very briefly what's next generally um you know i'm about to take a couple of months off um i'm doing a compilation for ace which is um all kind of music and more that kind of it's kind of music this is the way it's going to be it's music that inspired unloved and music that will inspire the next unloved album so and um that's in collaboration with ace and then um i'm doing a remix for jarvis cocker which i'm really excited about it's his new song and it's absolutely amazing wow it's so good about time no, we missed him. It's yeah, it's ridiculously <clears throat> good. It's like echoes of Morricone and Scott Walker, and amazing. you know the Radiophonic Workshop mixed it, and it's just it's the most amazing arrangement. So I'm going to do that. I'm just finishing off a new Steven Soderbergh movie called The Laundromat with Meryl Streep and Gary Oldman and Antonio Banderas, which is based on the Panama Papers, and it's one of his <clears throat> finest, finest films he's ever made. And I mean, that's saying something. And then you take two months off. Yeah, I, I kind of, I, I'm kind of musicked out because I was actually just thinking, I haven't really stopped working, and you know, I've done so much like film work, and it, it, it comes a time where you just have to stop, just become a fan of music again. Oh, totally, and absolutely. Just, you got to, you got to refuel. Just listen and totally. enjoy it rather than kind of be because really working to a deadline, you know. Because really, you but you know, your whole life, you know, we're. Anyone who's fortunate enough to sort of make a living one way or another about, mu- about music, you've been listening, your whole life has been research. So you need to live. 
in order to research more yeah indeed. <laughs> yeah um and you know it's like there's nothing quite like listening to something for the first time that you've never heard before and it, it just it really does stir me and just that thing of like that slightly guilty trip to a record shop where maybe there are other more nominally pressing things to do but here you are and uh and then suddenly you describe, I, you know, I was in a shop in uh, one of my favourite shops in Palmer's Green in North London. And uh, and I shouldn't really have been there. There was, I had so much to do. And, um, and, and um, but there I was. And I just found a, a what turned out to be a, a British jazz album on Deeram by a musician called Michael Gibbs, his first album in 1970. And I just heard it, and it was just the most electrifying piece of music. Wow. And it just, um, you know, those kind of where that British jazz slightly meets library music, right. and the rhythm section is sensational. And I just got home, I was, I'm so glad, you know, I'm just so, I shouldn't have even have been there, really. <laughs> but I, it's justified. No one can take this record away from me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Sort of, and um, That's when it's kind of like, you know... It's like me walking in to see Terry Hooley that day. I mean, I, we could, if we got our thinking caps on, we could think of like many, many moments like that through our whole lives. Of course. But the fate of just right time, right place, and then suddenly you're given this thing which is cheaper than therapy and probably sometimes a lot more effective. Totally. I mean, it worked for me when I was nine, and it's working for me now. Do you yeah, know man. what I mean? It's like, Long oh, may it continue. Uh, David Holmes, an absolute pleasure to spend time with you. You've been listening to the Ace Records podcast. I've been Pete Perfides, and I hope you can join me next time. Bye-bye. For more excellent music, you can scoot over to the Ace Records website, www.acerecords.co.uk all the wonderful music you could possibly need.